0: My name is Vilma Fuentes, and this is our podcast, Developing Global Citizens. Uh, today, I am honored to have here Dr. Ann Laffey, one of the anthropology professors at our college. And she just finished coming back from a phenomenal trip to Bolivia. And please tell us, how in the world did you get to Bolivia, especially in the midst of a pandemic? We'll get to that in a bit too, but
1: yeah. Uh, Well, hello, Vilma, and thank you so much for uh, having me on. I am so excited to actually tell you so much about my trip, and um, I would keep you for hours because it was jam-packed full of amazing uh, connections and experiences. Um, But how did I get there? Let's start with how I actually got to be in Bolivia. Well, first of all, um, as you know, uh, you sent me the email. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I encouraged you. You sent me the email that um, had the list for the, uh, for the program, uh, which was sponsored by uh, Florida International uh, University. It is um, actually um, a brainchild and an and inspiration that comes from uh, Dr. Maria Luisa Vesaga, and uh, she happens to originate from Bolivia. She grew up in Bolivia. And so um, this is her backyard, and so she was kind enough to actually invite eight of us, uh, eight of the faculty members from across the country, to come with her and experience her Bolivia, um, which is a diverse experience because Maria Luisa Visaga is an academic, uh, as well as being uh, a citizen of Bolivia and also the United States.
0: <clears throat> so um, FIU's, Kimberly Green's uh, Latin American and Caribbean Center, yes. uh, they're the ones who funded this. And and I don't know for those listeners out there, they uh, are a national resource center, one of four that we have in Florida. FIU is a, one of only two universities in Florida that has a national resource center funded by uh, the U.S. Department of Education. And this is in an effort to increase uh, student knowledge of um, Specific regions of the world, and also of less commonly taught languages. So, uh, so FIU has a spectacular Latin American studies program, and this is why you were there. And you, why, like, why you? Why not some like professor from UF or FSU? Uh, what was unique about you and the other people on the trip?
1: Yes, um, and so one of the things that we were expected to express uh, in our application was. Um, how we saw uh, international study and uh, connecting uh, students um, from various backgrounds um, who might not necessarily see themselves as uh, as international study students how can we connect them to this very valuable and often life-changing experience so um, in my application i kind of related it to my own personal experience which um, has a long history with with santa fe um, at Santa Fe, when I first came to Santa Fe, um, there were two things about me as a student. First of all, I'm in the category of what you call a non-traditional quote-unquote student, <laughs> which essentially means I'm old. Uh, and going, older, <laughs> older, older. Older than older, the norm. Yes, older. Um, uh, this was my second career. I spent my first career um, in the uh, eye care industry as an, as an optician taking care of people's eyes. And I always wanted to be an archaeologist. Never knew when I would have the opportunity. And when I moved to Gainesville, I decided that I would try college to see if I could even do it. (laughs) And so my first step was at Santa Fe. Um, But one of the reasons that I didn't initially go into um, archaeology like I wanted to when I was coming out of high school uh, and did not participate in any study abroad uh, activities when I was in high school is um, you see the posters and you see all the beautiful uh, types of uh, pictures that kind of go along with that, but immediately when I would look at that, I would think, oh, that's lovely, but that's for someone else. We okay. don't have the money for that, that's not for students like me, that is for other other people to participate in. Uh, and then when I got to Santa Fe, I was quickly told um, by one of my old uh, teachers, uh, Professor Stuart McCray, that uh, not only was that for me, but we would make it happen, right? We would totally make that happen, I'm gonna cry. Um, And and he did. Um, He actually helped me uh, apply for a scholarship uh, and uh, the funding and, but more than anything, I think, um, it just really made me believe that it was for me. And so, um, to make a long, teary story Sure.
0: <laughs> As I'm sitting here yes. starting to cry and remember this fine yes. professor. Uh, he was
1: such a life-changing uh, individual and really worked hard to, um, to better the lives of his students. And he is my inspiration in the classroom uh, every day uh, in a tall order to kind of live up to. Um, <clears throat> so, because he made me believe that this was an experience for me and helped me uh, to uh, make this into a reality, Um, That's kind of been my mission statement. And so I kind of relayed that um, uh, in the application. And so I think that is why um, they, they agreed, because that is one of the primary objectives for this study is connecting our students at Santa Fe College to students, international students, students around the world, and in particular students from this indigenous community who may may share some of the same challenges that our Santa Fe students do. Maybe they're first time students, they don't have someone to kind of show them the path. Mm -hmm. Um, What are they gonna do for a career? Um, This is changing so quickly in our global world what students will actually do with degrees. And so students in uh, Jesus de Machaca, which is the village that we visited, and students in Santa Fe College They have the same questions and the same challenges and so connecting these two groups of students could really make a a major impact on both sets of
0: students so um i'd like to just comment a few things so stuart mcrae was actually a, a very distinguished anthropology professor when I started at Santa Fe, and what's interesting, you said that you uh, he helped you find a scholarship and go on study abroad. But I don't know what I know about Stewart is that he was doing study abroad before there was officially a study abroad, right? <laughs> it was like the Stewart. Things I hear this is probably not okay with other administrators <laughs> at the college, but you know, things like he'd say like, "Yeah, this spring break I'm going to Ecuador. Who wants to come? Absolutely, and, right? Absolutely. And and uh, I think one of the things, I mean, I saw aside from the fact that he was just larger than life and just a spectacular professor and really quite inspirational, that, as he liked to say, he had a couple of fast horses, right? And so sometimes (laughs) he'd make extra money on the side with the horses. And then I think he would use that to fund students and help them travel the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, so anyway, so uh, and in fact, for our listeners out there, if anybody is interested, when he passed away, We established a scholarship in the Santa Fe College Foundation um, called the Stuart McRae Scholarship that today helps fund study abroad scholarships for for others so that others can have this same um, experience. So it's lovely to know that Uh, You know, his legacy continues. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. But if I'm not mistaken, what you did with FIU, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the the faculty that went, I mean, they weren't UF or FSU faculty. I believe it was community college and maybe K-12 faculty.
1: Absolutely. Um, so they were community college professors. There were some, um, uh, there were uh, one or two that were from R1 research uh, universities, but um, a lot of language uh, studies and a, and a provost from another one of the uh, institutions that was, uh, that were focused on language. Um, and so um, language or speaking second languages, that's something that I always uh, stress to my students. I, I, always uh, really kind of emphasize in the classroom that if they already speak two languages, which we're fortunate at Santa Fe to have a very diverse student body. And so many of my students actually, English is their second language, and so they're, they're masters of, of both languages. I try to emphasize for them what a gift that, that truly is. And uh, when it comes to my work, um, because um, I uh, came to Spanish very late in life, It's harder to learn uh, Spanish when you when you are older, but I would encourage everyone to please add this to their toolkit. It doesn't matter if you're going to be an archaeologist and study in Peru, you can stay here right in the United States. If you can speak another language, you really have such a a marketable and valuable skill that will allow you to connect to people uh, in a different way and i didn't really realize this until personally i participated in study abroad and also started my graduate work Um, because when you start your graduate work and you are living in an area where people don't speak english and they only speak spanish which was what my experience was um, it helps me also relate to my students in the classroom whose english is a second language because you want to tell people um, how you feel about them You want to tell people jokes, you want people to get to know you, you'd like people to know how intelligent you are. But if you don't speak the language, you cannot communicate any of those things to people that you happen to be working with. And so it can be very isolating and a little bit lonely when you can't necessarily express these things to other people. And the only way that you can actually do that is by picking up that second language and really uh, putting in a concerted effort, not just to learn the words and the grammar, but to be brave enough to, to speak it and to actually engage in conversations. And so this trip to Bolivia, um, <laughs> I was really intimidated because I was traveling with um, half of the people who were native Spanish speakers, and the other half of the people taught Spanish. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and then there was you. And, and then there was me. And so I was very intimidated, um, but so totally pleased with this trip, and my Spanish did get a slight bit better. But I was really reminded on so many instances during this trip how valuable languages, and uh, in particular, um, when we had these scholarly exchanges, one of my colleagues who was a Spanish instructor was speaking and relaying one of his wonderful experiences that he had in the past with indigenous communities in Mexico. And he was relaying how he was working with uh, someone, uh, one of the villagers who worked with flowers. And he would wake up every morning, and they would have to separate the bulbs. And they'd get up and separate the bulbs and, and these beautiful colors. And so later on that evening, one of the native Spanish speakers that, were, that was with us, a PhD student um, from um, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, explained to him that he didn't actually use the word bulb when he was describing <laughs> <separating> <laughs> flowers. and instead he used the word vulva uh, which is a totally different scene with your separating bulbs versus separating vulva. Well needless to say that really did make us kind of break out laughing but uh, the scholar who he made this mistake with just completely just giggled laughed it off and when we went on with our exchange and it just wasn't an issue and so you know having the courage to actually speak and engage in conversation knowing you are definitely going to make a mistake at some point they're not always going to be that amusing (laughs) um, but you will make a mistake and it will be okay and you can
0: just keep going that's great that's wonderful so um so kudos to you for still uh, tackling this challenge and being brave enough to go, especially with this cohort of Spanish-speaking people. But. But, you know, I'm trying to visualize this. So Bolivia, so you land in La Paz or you landed in La Paz. I imagine that in this, you know, in the capital, there's a lot of Spanish speaking. But then you went to the highlands. Were you using Spanish there? Explain to me, like, what languages were being spoken there? Yes. And so
1: one of the most magical experiences of this trip was being able to go with um, Dr. Vesaga to Jesus de Machaca. Um, She had two things up her sleeve when we visited that community, well, many things up her sleeve. Um, We began the visit by just exploring the community, which was a beautiful, uh, well-kept community with a typical kind of colonial church, which is, uh, you can see those spotted all over Latin America. Um, And then from there, um, we actually had the opportunity to meet with the community leaders, or the Malku, uh, that will come out as well as the Malku's wives and other um, and other uh, villagers from, from Jesus de Machaca. Um, and so we had an exchange uh, which was amazing. Um, they brought food and in particular potatoes. Um, so anyone who's familiar with the Andes will know that there's over 3,000 varieties of potatoes in the Andes and that's where they originate from is the Andes. And um, so they had this big textile full of these potatoes of every kind of variety you can ever see and maybe never saw before in your life. And so you're thinking, oh my goodness, I have to eat a lot of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of potatoes tonight, um, And also quinoa because it's another product that, that they make. But the, the the cool thing about the potatoes is that uh, not all potatoes are the same. And so there, there were many different varieties of flavors to go along with the potatoes but also um, in exchanging with the food um, we were uh, participating in something that is a custom in the Andes. Always, it's and always a custom. Hospitality is a is a main uh, main type of social lubricant in the Andes. And so, after we exchanged the food and had a chance to enjoy the delicious food, um, we had an opportunity to talk to um, some of the of the mothers of the children about what their hopes and dreams were for their children as far as their educational goals and things like that. And uh, so we, um, again, I was just kind of reminded similar challenges to what what students at Santa Fe face, right? What are their children gonna study? If their children do go off to study, um, will they uh, come back and be able to kind of use what they've learned at at the university in the community or is this going to pull them away from the community which will kind of disrupt the community a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, and uh, again, these are similar things that we face here uh, you know, at Santa Fe. What will I do? What will my job be? Will it take me away from the community? Will I stay here? Will I have to move? Um, so it was, um, it, 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 it was really kind of eye-opening to, to speak with the mothers and also spend time with some of the students so some of the children were there as well and kind of watch them also interact in the community.
0: Um, another. So uh, allow me to, if I could, in- sure. interject here. So I still want to go back to the languages thing. So mm-hmm. you were talking about Spanish. But mm-hmm. in the highlands, were you communicating oh, in, ha- yes. in Spanish? Or were you using Aymara, Quechua? What okay. were you using? So this
1: community uh, is a Quechua uh, okay. community. But they speak fluently in Quechua Spanish, and also a little bit of English. Hmm. And cool. so primarily, the communications were in Spanish. Uh, because none of us are Quechua speakers, but there are some things that that do not translate to to Spanish very well. And so, intermittently, um, you will hear Quechua terms for terms of endearment, terms of exchange. Um, Some things are Quechua, like uh, some potatoes are, you know, names for potatoes in Quechua. uh, different mm-hmm. things like that were kind of back and forth as far as language, but primarily Spanish. A little bit of Quechua kind of thrown in there as well. But, but
0: were community members communicating with each other, like with themselves in, in Quechua? Uh, always Quechua. Of course. Always Quechua. So they were using Spanish to be kind to you because you were the okay. Spanish to be kind. Spanish to be
1: kind. Um, and of course, you know, we, we did have a few Quechua terms that we were, uh, that we kind of learned while we were there just to kind of um, be able to express gratitude and, um, and, and welcoming and, and things like that. But, but yes, uh, they are uh, trilingual. <laughs> and so they kind of had one up on, on many of us as far as language skills go in that community. And that's another thing that the community is also very interested in. Um, They want to preserve their language because, of course, language is intimately connected with culture and heritage and identity, Um, so they are first and foremost wanting whatever education their children receive to include uh, Quechua, and that actually was one of the main themes of many of the scholars that we also had the opportunity to listen to as well. And the challenges that a plurinational nation faces, because that is what Bolivia actually is, as a plurinational nation. Many, many um, Ameri-Indian cultures are, are in that region. Uh, and um, it's difficult for them to actually pick one uh, language. Uh, like, for example, in Ireland, right, you can have you can Celtic and everything can be Celtic. But that's not the case in Bolivia. There are many, many languages that are still spoken that are very different from the Amazonian region into the Highland region into the valleys. And so dealing with maintaining language preservation under those circumstances is a challenge for our national education system. And that is part of what they're working on as far as decolonization as well, part of their decolonization efforts as a way to um, make sure that they acknowledge the the strengths that they have in the diversity that they have in the country.
0: So I know that there are many countries in the world, it could be India, South Africa, Kenya, whatever, that when you go to primary school, you can receive primary school instruction in your mother tongue, but then as you move, to high school, usually it's the national language, whatever. It might be Hindi. And then uh, usually when you go to university, then it's English. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was it like in Bolivia? Are, are, is primary school using the mother tongue? So currently it is not using the mother tongue. It is using
1: Spanish. And that's another issue with language preservation that they're having is, is parents are, are torn. Uh, parents want their children to be able to speak Spanish so they can participate in the in marketplace, right, in the marketplace and be competitive. Uh, but they also have a strong um, desire to maintain their own identity. And so I think what they're pushing for right now more than anything is to have both taught from the beginning, both Spanish and also Quechua at the same time. And the children, when we were at the, uh, at the uh, meet and greet, lack of a better word, meet and greet, um, were definitely speaking Quechua.
0: You know, and I just want to say for the sake of our listeners, especially if there's any students out there listening, these are not problems that are unique to the developing world. It doesn't just happen in the Andean region or South America or Africa or whatever, it happens in Europe. I'm thinking this, this is a very real issue and politically contentious issue in ukraine of you know you want people to love and speak your your native language but you know historically it's the people that were fluent in russian that got ahead in life and got the best jobs and and today it's now english the ones that you know you learn english and you become fluent in that and that those are going to give you the best positions and but how do you balance that off with just this preservation because like you know you said language culture heritage and identity are intricately woven. I would also add food, Absolutely. which you're kind of insinuating. Yeah. Uh, uh, so how could you stop eating potatoes if you're Bolivian? Or <laughs> exactly. how could you like stop speaking yes. Quechua and still be Quechua? You can't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so fascinating. Um, so I think I interrupted you. I did interrupt you. I know this. You were about to say something else about maybe I... Sorry. Well, okay. Let me ask a question. This is a part we're going to cut. Okay, it's about <laughs> <laughs> yeah the awkward pause about twenty one minutes into this. Yeah. Okay, um, talk to me about so in let's let's begin with terminology. Mm-hmm. Indigenous, right? Mm. Uh, I would if I was speaking to anybody on campus, I would say, oh yes, Dr. Ann Laffey was with an indigenous community Absolutely. in the in the highlands of Bolivia. Yeah. Do they see themselves as indigenous? Uh, did uh, one of your host and guides, Dr. Maria Luisa Veisaga from UF, see herself as indigenous?
1: Yeah, so that um, that is a very intimidating question, especially coming from someone outside uh, of the community to have to answer that, that question. And there isn't an answer for that question. Okay. <laughs> but um, what I will say is, um, and I'll be honest, um, when I first met um, Dr. Vesaga, I assumed that she would think of herself as indigenous because she comes from Bolivia and she comes from an indigenous community. She does not see herself that way, uh, and she has good reasons for not seeing herself that way. She is American, right? She lives in America, she doesn't live uh, in an indigenous community, and so she. It doesn't see herself that way.
0: Okay, wait, I need to stop you right there. (laughs) So, when you say America, so here in the United States, we're like I'm American, right? America. Yes. Uh, but um, I know that in my lifetime, uh, you know, also spending part of my life in Latin America, people in Latin America were like, "No, we're American. Absolutely. This is the Americas, yes. and whatever gave you uh, <laughs> yes. gringos." Yes. Uh, okay. So, yes. Uh, so when she sees herself or others that you spoke to see themselves as Americ, as American. Yes. How do they see it? Yes, like
1: so. So, American is a is definitely one of those terms, and I'm glad that you actually brought that up. And I also like the fact that you brought up the word gringos because that is, <laughs>
0: that is definitely it's, it's yeah. not a racial slur. No, I don't intend it as a racial no, slur. No, it's just no. a fact, and it's, it's used in it, Latin America. It, it, it is. It <laughs> is.
1: Um, and so. Um, Absolutely. And so, for example, when you're traveling uh, in Peru, you don't say you're American uh, because what do you mean by that? Right. Are you South American, North American? What what are you? Central American. You say you're from Estados Unidos. Right. Estados Unidos. Exactly. right. Right. So that's that's who you are. Right. Um, and so um, that that terminology is something that has to be adjusted because if you are immersed in quote unquote North American culture, you tend to kind of default to that. Well, I'm an American, uh, which doesn't work so well in, in Latin America for the exact reason that you actually kind of kind of say it. Um, so. Um, getting back to who's indigenous and who's not indigenous there are a number of wonderful scholars who have it kind of explored this topic about what that actually means and uh, connecting it to place and um, there is a, a, a scholar called Dr. Kimmerer who is Potawatomi who I think does one of the best definitions of, of indigenous and she uh, claims that it is a, a connection to uh, the earth, yes, to the, to the area that you live in, and a commitment uh, to the area that you live in. So if you are in an area and you commit to the well-being of not just the people in the area, but the earth in the area and connecting to the environment in the area, then you probably are indigenous. And so she, she thinks of indigeneity as
0: um, less a uh, social category and more of a relationship. You know, and it's striking, I'll just say this, I think, so terminology matters, identity matters, but who you are as an individual may also change depending on where you are in the world, right? Mm Because like if I'm speaking to somebody from, I don't know, Minnesota, I might say I'm a Floridian, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But if I was in France, I might say I'm an American, but if I was somewhere in Latin America, I would say, yo soy estadounidense, right? Or whatever. And and if I'm in in Florida, they're going to look at me and I might have to just go down into the weeds into my little subgroup right of who I really am <laughs> yes a Cuban-American, a yes. Honduran-American or whatever. Layers it's like Shrek says it's onions right, right? they're
1: layers to to identity and um, the same thing goes along with 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 this word this kind of charged word of indigeneity and um, also the fact that um, it can be politicized uh, oftentimes, in in both positive and negative ways.
0: So I've never heard of it being politicized. Tell me about that. Well, especially in Bolivia, oh, I'm guessing yeah. that's really <laughs> and so
1: that's a big that's a big thing for them. Um, and that was also an interesting thing because they uh, have uh, President Evo, uh, which is no longer in power, but recently in Evo power. Morales, absolutely, yeah, um, who was one of the first indigenous uh, presidents. Um, and um, I was really that was one of my one of my things I had in my mind before I visited there was to really see how he was perceived uh, in in La Paz and like do they love him do they hate him? And the answer is yes.
0: <laughs> so, um, kind so, of like Biden or Trump, yes. right? And so
1: one of the in an exchanges that I had with, um, there was a lovely woman who actually uh, was the manager of the hotel that we were staying in, which had a deep history, too. It's a colonial place. It's, it's miraculously survived for hundreds of years and has many stories in it. And she was kind enough to to tell me these stories. But I asked her what she thought about, um, about Evo. And she uh, had a wonderful answer. She's like, well you know, um, he's done a lot of good things, uh, you know, for uh, La Paz, she says, but we really don't care. We just want whoever is in the office to do what they're supposed to do (laughs) and do their job. And I thought, you know, that's the same thing in the United States, right? We just simply want to elect officials that will do the job and serve the people and less about identity and more about what they're supposed to do as far as governing. Um, so I thought that was a fantastic answer that she gave. So um, tell me about the shaman you met. Oh, uh, yes. And so um, I made the mistake of calling him uh, a shaman <laughs> and was corrected uh, by uh, Dr. Vesaga. Um, he is a yatiri um, who, uh, for, for lack of a better translation, is, is more of a spiritual healer. And so we were fortunate enough to have this experience with this Yatiri that, um, that she has known for her entire life, uh, as opposed to kind of a tourist Yatiri, someone who is really just kind of out to kind of give tourists this kind of ex- not-so-real experience. So the time that we spent with the Yatiri, uh, the reason that we actually sought him out is before we went to Jesus Machaco, which was to ask permission from Pachamama, who is the main, one of the main deities of the region, uh, to accept us into the community and to make sure that what we did in the community had right intentions and um, for us to be able to develop really good connections with the community. And so it was very mindful and very purposeful. Um, and it the same time as he was conducting the rituals to uh, make offerings of alcohol to Pachamama, because she likes alcohol.
0: Uh, and <laughs> Many people do.
1: He, yes, she does. Um, and uh, offered um, sugar and uh, gold and silver, all of the things that we thought would please Pachamama. He also gave us a lesson in Andean cosmology. And so he was able to kind of... Um, explain to us how this cosmology connects with um, things that happen underneath the Earth and on the Earth and up in the sky. But I think one of the most remarkable things about this experience was um, how uh, a lot of times when we think of individuals who live in rural communities, we tend to assume that they're disconnected, that they're somehow not part of the global world. They're they're kind of out of time, right? Um, how well connected he was to to uh, current issues like climate change and resources and sustainability. Uh, So he was able to connect uh, the cosmology to how we might actually develop a different relationship to make us be more mindful in regard to sustainability and also to climate change. Um, And so in a nutshell, he was hip. (laughs) (laughs) He had ancient knowledge that, uh, as an archaeologist, I know I can see these same kind of symbols and beliefs and connections that not only connect to
0: what's going on now, but will likely kind of carry us forward to our future. So the big question is, how will you share this knowledge, and especially, uh, I mean, with peers, with students? Yes, and so I I did
1: kind of feel a little bit like I was cheating for this assignment because, of course, I'm an anthropologist, Uh, and so I teach general anthropology and cultural anthropology, and so immediately I can pull this into the classroom, and I actually did put it into my classroom while I was in the field because I was still teaching summer A at the beginning of this program, Uh, and so I was able to actually connect the students to one of the most amazing uh, experiences on the trip, which was to be there during their local election. And um, I'm getting chills thinking about it. Because as an archaeologist, one of the things we learned about Andean social organization is that there was something called complementarity, um, where leadership uh, wasn't in one person. It was in two people. And most of the time, a man and a woman. Because these two individuals have access to different knowledges and different influences within a traditional community. So at the election, um, the platform, each candidate had to get up and do their platform. Uh, Yes, the man started, but the platform, half of the platform and half of the time equally was devoted to his wife. And so people weren't just voting on the man, they're voting on the couple, right? And so it really was complementarity brought to life. It was absolutely amazing. Then uh, when it was time to vote, and again, I'm getting chills just thinking about this, the way that you vote is each candidate steps up on the platform. And if you would like to vote, you have to stand behind the person that you're voting for. Now, you have to keep in mind that this was the New Year celebration. And so we have individuals coming from all over the region. There are thousands of people up on this mountain peak <laughs> celebrating the arrival of Inti Raymi, this June solstice sun, and participating in this election. Well, this election happened to be a landslide. And so the vision that this election produced was this line of people behind this candidate that went across the horizon. It was stunning to see democracy happen like this. Um, It's so different from what we do here in the United States and just very, very, very impactful. You not only place your vote, but we can see who you're standing behind. You're physically standing behind and supporting the person that you want to Pull the community together and to organize the community
0: and to organize community labor. It was remarkable. Wonderful. Um, so, moving forward, you know, as you prepare for the fall and for other semesters, mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. you anticipate seeing other opportunities to share all of oh, this? Oh, absolutely. And
1: so, um, other than bringing these images and discussions into the classroom, I am absolutely looking forward to developing a study abroad which I would like to actually kind of create a Pan-Andean study abroad. Oh, that would be lovely. As an archaeologist, one of the things we know is that current geopolitical borders are are not the reality for the ancient Absolutely. world. Absolutely. And when you're talking about the Andean world, um, it's not just Peru. It's not just Bolivia. It's not just Chile. It's not just Ecuador. It is that full spine of the Andes that run all the way down. And so I would like to kind of create a trip, um, and I'm gonna go back to talking about Stuart McRae, um, that Stuart took me on, which really led to my love and all of my graduate work. So I've worked in Peru for 15 years, largely because of the influence that his study abroad had on me as a student. Um, The first study abroad I went on was organized by Stuart and took us from uh, the desert uh, in the Andes and Nazca to Machu Picchu. Uh, to the sacred valley we had such an amazing taste of what that nation was actually like Um, so much more than you could get as a tourist where they only take you to a certain like Machu Picchu and that's what you think Peru is Um, and so he just instilled in me such a love of the Andean culture and a desire to really understand it on its own terms.
0: Excellent well I look forward to seeing all the really wonderful <laughs> things you're going to do in the next few months I'm or so years. I'm so yeah, excited. Yeah, developing global citizens right here yes. at Santa Fe College. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much.